Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll continue in this book today as we consider uh, what the Apostle Paul teaches us, uh, which is very needful for us to know. In fact, um, for all those mothers out there and mothers-to-be, your job is um, an important one. Uh, to raise children in this day, to love the Lord, to raise up a godly seed so when you're not there and when you're finally gone that they'll live for Christ and carry the baton to the next generation. It's an awesome responsibility and it starts with not only your relationship with the Lord but it starts with you knowing truth. So to know What's in the book of Ephesians is vital uh, for you to be able to teach your children how to live in this world. And so we're going to be looking at probably verses 2, 3, and 4 uh, this morning. And I'm, we're looking at it in this sense that these are here, this first part is here, to teach us about God because when we learn about God and we learn about the blessings we have in Christ, that's when we genuinely are able to praise God. It's not really, it's not about material blessings. It's not about what you have, how much you make, who you know, uh, how much education you have. That's, that's, those, those are really the byproducts The key is the benefits that we actually have in Christ. That is really the source and the root of praise. So praise for God is really fueled and prompted by thinking about what God has done and then to ascribe to him the glory, the credit for what he has done because It is due his name, and we all know and we sing about that God is worthy of our praise. Is he not? He is worthy of our praise. And so today, we together really want to pull back the layers of God's marvelous plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we want to praise God for not only who he is, not only what he is, but We want to praise God because of the way in which he blesses us. And sometimes we miss that. Sometimes we don't really think about it. Listen, we are, in this very sense, remember I've been saying that Ephesians is a book for God's kids. We're privileged. We're privileged characters. I should have named it that. That should have been my title. Privileged characters. And you are. See, we have to look at ourselves like that. Because that's exactly what the Bible says about us. In fact... Uh, if you look at verse number six, he's three times he uses this phrase. In verse six, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Verse 12 of chapter one, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And then verse 14 again, who is given a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So these passages, right in chapter 1, three times he is saying, listen, these truths are for God's people to praise him and to be excited about praising him. So these 
show believers really what they ought to do. This is what we ought to do. We ought to praise God because Christians are blessed with manifold blessings and benefits because of our connection with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So who is the us in verse number three? Well, the last time we learned from the scripture from verse number one that the us is referring to Christians and of course Christians who are saints, Christians who are faithful, Christians who are in Christ. In fact, it's talking about the same person. We are saints, we're faithful, we're in Christ. So we Christians are placed in the sphere of blessing because of our union and vital connection to Jesus Christ. All the benefits and blessings that are connected to Christ are ours. They are, they're ours, our possession. So the benefits we should enjoy as a result of being Christians Uh, Well, look at verse number two. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul often uses these two words together. But if you notice in verse number two, he uses grace before peace. In fact, you cannot have peace unless you have grace. You can't reverse them. And he puts them there like that for this reason. Because grace is the origin and source of everything in the Christian life. As a result of the Christian life, uh, and as a result of that, of course, it's meant to produce peace. So grace is favor from God. You nor I deserve it, and we really have no right to it. We don't. But if anyone is to know the peace of God, then the grace of God needs to be received. And so that's why it's the gospel of grace. And the, really the root meaning of the word peace is union. And so union after separation, it, it is, it's bringing together uh, one who after a contest or a quarrel is now brought together as one. And and we use the word reconciliation. Two, you don't have to reconcile friends, but you do have to reconcile enemies, right? So the word is actually used to be at peace with somebody is to be reconciled with them. And so that's us. We're reconciled with God. He's the one who's given us the peace. So the apostle is really pointing out our need. We need grace and we need peace. Now, why do we need grace and peace? because of what man is by nature, right? By nature, we are enemies of God. We are haters of God. In fact, if you look over to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 in Ephesians, notice what it says there. It says, where where Paul really says, uh, we are these things. In verse 1, it reminds us, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, in 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest you know he's talking to he's talking about us this is what we were in in other words man is full of internal and external aggression from birth we are an example of this actually is uh, an assignment was was given to Muslim students in a university in Lombok Indonesia by our our missionary Jamie Winship where he was teaching their uh, advanced English and so the last project he gave these Muslim students it was was this this is their project to write on and the question was he wrote a question on the board why does man have aggression in his heart he walked out of the classroom and he left now he knew when he wrote that on the board something would happen he knew that because he could never talk about Christ in class so he had to try to get the students to his office and then he can talk all he wants so he did that and it turned out they had no reference point to answer that question so they started coming to his office to tell him that they did not know how to answer it and they didn't even know where to start answering that question Jamie of course smiled and gave them the gospel of Jesus Christ and explained to them the sinful nature of man and they began to understand and see the need for Jesus Christ as a savior who provides not only grace but peace and then solves the matter of aggression the matter of aggression against us and God and against us and people and even the aggression that's in ourselves internal turmoil that all of us know very well when it goes on inside of us Uh, and so what happened is that some Muslims trusted Christ and other Muslim fundamentalists which used to line up on he told me on the front row of his classroom and and exegete every single word he ever he said in class they threatened his life they told him we're going to kill you because of what you're saying what you're doing because they found out about what was happening in his office all right he never did get killed in fact he moved from Lombok to uh, Jakarta and then from Jakarta to Iraq and from Iraq to Jordan and now he's going to be home based in Israel so he's still ministering to the Muslims doing the same thing in fact if we gave that project today in a classroom in the university I would I would I would say that people still would not know how to answer that question Americans would not know how to answer that question why is there aggression in your heart why is there wars why are why are why is there so much tension in the world why is this going on well as a result of sin man is in a state of external and internal aggression and warfare and they are out of union with God and therefore are unfulfilled and unhappy they do not know even that man was made by God in such a way that he can only be at peace within himself when he has a is at peace with God himself that's the only way it could happen so you see when we see the depth of sin to which we have fallen we should conclude that we deserve to be blotted out of existence yet at that point at 
that point, that's the very point, actually, that God shows his grace. It is in which he informs sinful people that in spite of all that is true of us, external, internal aggression and sinfulness and rebellion towards God, when we receive God's grace, God looks on us with favor. He looks on us with favor. You know that passage of Scripture, Romans 5.20. The law came in so that transgression would, keep, would increase, but where sin increases, what? The grace of God abounds all the more. Right, So the thing is that there's no amount of sin that God's grace cannot reach down and save someone. So the gospel is the gospel of grace. And you see, when a repentant sinner receives the gospel of grace, God undoes completely everything resulting from their sin and through grace receives the peace of God. Paul, again in Romans, says, Therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse number two, through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and exalt in hope of the glory of God. So see, in other words, the conflict when we come to Christ is ended. We're at peace with God. We learn what it means to be at peace within, and then, of course, we learn also how to love people we didn't love before. Uh, we, ha- we learn how to reach out to those who uh, we would never reach out to before. Uh, in fact, when you start loving like God loves, skin color doesn't matter anymore. Social status doesn't matter anymore. Where you came from doesn't matter anymore. In fact, The sin that you committed in your life doesn't matter anymore when you come to Christ because now we look at people like God looks at people. They all need Christ. They all need the peace of God in their heart. So the source of this change and this new standing is God the Father. Now, this brings me back to my text. Look at verse number three because this is where I'm going. It says, um, excuse me, verse number two. It says, grace to you and peace. And then notice this, from God our Father. Now that's very significant. In fact, for the first time, the Christian understands that God is their Father. That He is our Father as a body of believers and what changes are standing before our Father is also found in verse number 2, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what changes our standing. The Father could his, change his standing between you and I because of what Christ did on the cross. So Christ is the one who satisfies the Father, so the Father can call us children. He can call us into his family. See, it was, he's our Lord Jesus. He bore the punishment On the cross, his blood was shed for us and we are reconciled to God and have peace with God and Jesus gives us new birth and we become the children of God. And of course, John records right in chapter one where he says, but as many as received him, to them he gave what? The right, 
the authority to become children of God. I'm a child of God. I'm in God's family. And I've said this, actually, Charles Spurgeon says, and we have royal blood now running through our veins. We're children of the king. Of the king of kings and the lord of lords. Man, if that's not a privileged position, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. But as king's kids, we have to act differently because of our position. And we ought to speak differently and think differently because we are different. So within this in mind, with this in mind, the first benefit that's bestowed upon us as Christians, and there are three benefits that is, comes from the Father and that we can praise God about is this, that the Father, here's the first thing we ought to praise God about, coming from the Father. Now you're going to find that the whole first chapter is Trinitarian. It starts with the Father, looks at Jesus Christ, and it tells us about the Spirit of God, all working together, this plan of salvation. And so the Father chooses us, the Father adopts us, verse number 5, and the Father accepts us in verse number 6. These are the blessings that flow from the Father. Now, when I first started out this particular book, remember, it starts out with doctrine, right belief, orthodoxy. And so the Christian is to know their blessed position in Christ, and the certainty of it is what God has done for us and what has he done for us? In fact, verses number two, uh, three onwards, is one long Greek sentence. Uh, Twelve verses from one long sentence. And so if I were to preach the whole sentence at one time, we would be here for a very long time. So I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm going to break it up in, in pieces, and I'm going to show you what it says here. And so the, the believer's blessed positions and position and possessions in Christ. And what are they? Well, all spiritual blessings. Verse number three, if you notice again, according to this passage, all Christians have their possession, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, although the adjective here uh, occurs elsewhere, like in verse 320, chapter 2, chapter 3 and chapter 6 the word places heavenly places in Christ in the translation places is not in the original it's really heavenly in Christ the heavenlies it was translated in some Bibles the heavenlies in Christ well I think what it's getting at there is that we're not actually in heaven yet and so the but our calling is in heaven our the power to live our daily life is from heaven it's from above, and God's provision is heavenly. So all these things come to us from heaven. Now, that means that these are blessings that are spiritual rather than material and temporal. These are blessings that cannot be robbed from us. They, cannot be, they, they can't rust away. They can't fall apart because the Father has blessed us in Christ Jesus. So there's an eternal heavenly aspect to the blessings that God has given to us. Now, notice again the repeated phrase in verse number three, in Christ. We see it again. It is only in him that we ever could have received these blessings. So blessings, 
that God gives us will sustain us through this life. It will sustain us through trials. It will, cause, it will stand the test of time, and it will bring us right into eternity. Now, some of those, of course, are, are very obvious. For example, one blessing is the blessing of sins forgiven. All right? If, even if I go back to Psalm chapter 32, it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. All right? How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So the Bible is, is really telling us, listen, you're a blessed person. The nearness of God is with you because you're forgiven. But there's a, a second blessing which I want to look at from this passage of Scripture in Ephesians, and it's the blessing of divine election. The blessing of divine election. Now, Psalms... Chapter 65 in verse 4 says this, How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you. So when, when we're talking about being blessed by God, we're, we're talking about God bringing us near to him, close to him, into his family, into his, the fellowship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we are truly blessed when God has chosen us and brings us near, and then it says in the Psalms, to dwell in his courts, we will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. So in verse number four of Ephesians chapter one, notice what he says. Now this is, remember, a blessing from the Father. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the one who brings this blessing. And in verse four, just as he, that's the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, that means that the Christian Christians have blessings not only in the past, but those past blessings are come to the present, and of course, those present blessings have future results to them. So, the blessings that come from the Father. Here's the first one, and I'll just park on this one this morning because it's such a huge one, and it's this. The Father has chosen us. The source of our election is the Father himself, the grace of the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him. It is the wor word elect to choose. Here it is actually in the middle voice, if you care, but it means that he chose for himself, that God, when God made a choice, didn't ask anybody's advice, uh, he didn't consult with any human beings. Uh, he didn't ask the philosophers and the PhDs for any, anything. It says here that he chose us for himself. That means the Father's affection. Affections are not really distant from us. Rather, there is a grand, cohesive conspiracy of love in the Godhead originating in the eternal sovereign grace of the Father. Now, you may not realize this, 
but divine election is the grandest, most joy-producing doctrine in all the Bible. It's also the most hated doctrine. The doctrine of election is never presented in Scripture as something to be afraid of, but always as something for believers to rejoice in. See, we're going to praise God and rejoice because we're chosen. So, there was a preacher who, who died not long ago, who was a pastor not far from here. Before he died, he wrote a book, The Doctrines of Grace. But he died before the book could be finished. And so the task was taken up by his associate pastor to finish and publish the book, one of his requests he had. And the person I'm referring to is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Uh, and he said something about the doctrine of election that is worth repeating. He said this, and I quote, election is an important measuring rod for someone's theology since an acceptance or rejection of this doctrine reveals at once whether a person is biblically correct on such other doctrines as the nature and extent of sin, the bondage of the will, the full grace of God in salvation, and even the presentation of the gospel. So election is the doctrinal measuring rod for everything else we would believe as believers. And I, I agree with him on this point because it is a test if one's theology is God and Scripture-centered or man and world-centered. I invite you to rest comfortably in the fact that God has been and is at work concerning salvation of souls, your souls, and he is sovereign in salvation and that he makes no mistakes whatsoever. Now, will you fully understand this truth? The answer to that question is no, you won't. But I tell you this, you must come to terms with this doctrine in one way or another. And here's some advice. Don't fight against it, like I did. Instead, submit to the wisdom of God found in the word of God because the judge of all the earth shall do what is right. You and I may not be able to explain the doctrine of divine election, but you and I may surely enjoy it to its fullest because it's one of the benefits that we have in Christ. So in the backdrop of this particular doctrine is, of course, the sovereignty of God. Uh, this simply assumes that God is in control of everything, that he is utterly independent and he is never a victim of anyone or anything at any time that's who god is if he was not that he would not be god now there's a passage i want you to turn to in isaiah for a minute isaiah 43 because the prophet isaiah records there a view of god that god wanted him to know as he preached and uh, prophesied amongst god's people and he says this in Isaiah 43 in verse number 10. He says this, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, 
and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? In other words, I'm God. And what I say and what I do and what I choose stands forever. Nobody could change that. So, see, one difficulty, why people have animosity toward this doctrine is because they conclude, usually with a shout of annoyance, that it's not fair. But let me ask you something can a person really say God's not fair? Can a human being actually say that? I would have to say a resounding no. Now why? Well, God is not to be measured by any human standard. He can't be. If it were possible for God's fairness to be measured, by whose standard would that measurement take place? By man's standard? A fallen creature who loves darkness rather than light? See, we may all, we, I, really, we must all come to grips with the, the bold-faced facts that no one has the right or capacity ju to judge if God is fair. No one. In fact, in Scripture, Psalms 50 says this, you thought that I was just like you. And he is not. Even Paul in Romans 11 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. He thinks that he has come to a place where he understands somewhat of who God is, and he does, but then God shows him something, teaches him something, and realizes, man, this knowledge, this understanding is beyond me. God is unsearchable. I can't search him out. His ways are too deep. So Scripture tells us that God is infinitely and perfectly just. And the Psalms tells us righteousness and justice are the fountain of his throne. See, God wills and is just. God is fair by nature and character, and therefore he defines justice. He sets the standard. Then, when he sets it, that is the standard. And that standard cannot be changed by either one of us. So, see, the question we should ask is really... Is, is, the question we, we, we should ask is really not, is God just and fair? But the question we should ask is, does the, does the Scriptures teach this? That's what we should be asking. Does the Bible teach this? Well, if you search out the New Testament, that you will find an abundance of text about God's choosing. In fact, if you'd like to turn there with me, there are some passages. There's one I want you to turn to, but you could just listen. Right from Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, he says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved but for the sake of the elect. Those days will be cut short. The apostle Luke wrote in Luke 18, verse 7, Now will 
not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? And, and then in Romans, Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Again, in Colossians, he says, so as those who have been chosen of God, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10 for this reason, I endure all things for those who are chosen. That Paul's ministry was he endured suffering for the chosen, for those who may obtain salvation, which is in Jesus Christ, and it will be to his eternal glory. And then in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, A bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. Same word used there. He's talking about the elect. He's talking about God choosing those who would be saved. In fact, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The apostle Peter, again, he brings up here in verse number 1, it says, Peter, an apostle, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithany, who are chosen. And then it says in verse number two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So in other words, the definition of election, to make it very simple, is God picked, he called out, he selected, or he chose certain people to be saved. Therefore, it is the chosen that are saved. Now, let me plainly say that salvation did not originate with the will of man, but it originated with the will of God. That, there, that were it not so, none would be saved or could be saved, for as a result of the fall, man has lost all desire and will to do anything good, especially to respond to God, it rendered him dead. And even the elect themselves must be made willing by God to come. They must, they must be drawn to God by the truth. God must grant unto them faith and repentance. And so, as I've been saying here, that the source of our election is the Father. The Heavenly Father is the one who does the choosing. And so God selects those who will be saved and then gives them to the bride, his son. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, and when he prays, this is what he says in verse number 9, chapter 17. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Those that the Father gave to the Son. And of course, Thessalonians, Paul says, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. Now, this is a family secret. This is for the children of God. This is for the family of God. This is the source of our praise, that the Father has chosen us. And I pray that everyone here will come to understand and love this doctrine. And when you do, it will inform every thought and shape everything you do. One of the old creeds of the church hammered out a pretty clear 
statement of this doctrine, and it's as follows. And I quote, that God saves from corruption and damnation those whom he has chosen from the foundation of the world, not for any disposition, faith, or holiness that he foresaw in them, but on his but of his mere mercy in Christ Jesus his son, passing by all the rest according to the irrehensible uh, reason of his own free will and justice. So see, in other words, God chooses people. Uh, Why does he do it? Why does he do it? He does it in love, and that's it. To go further than that, we would really be in trouble. But there's one thing that I want you to notice in the passage of Scripture that I mention in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 2, because there's some confusion in this area, and I want to kind of correct it. How are we elect? In 1 Peter 1, 2, remember it says that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, here are some things to clear up. What is foreknowledge? First of all, election is not based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. People will agree that God predestines some to be saved, but they will say that he does this by looking into the future and seeing who will believe in Christ and who will not, and then based on foreknowledge of the person's faith, he elects them. If they do not believe, he doesn't elect them. You see, some believe the ultimate reason why some are saved and some are not lies within the people themselves, not with God. See, all that God does is in his predestinating work is to give confirmation to the decision he knows people will make on their own. In other words, God's choice follows man's choice. But that's not the way the Bible teaches it. In fact, this view actually destroys the meaning of the word foreknowledge. Understand this, in the sovereignty of God, the only things that can be foreknown are those that are predetermined. And this means that election must be prior to faith, prior to believing. God's foreknowledge is not in any in any way because the person was a good person or they were a decent person or they were a wise person or they uh, had any kind of power or choice on their own or they were seeking God. That's not why God chooses people. Also, foreknowledge is of persons and not of facts. It is a personal, relational knowledge, a special love which is spoken of in the Word of God. God thought of certain people in a saving relationship to Him in this sense. He knew them long ago. So when people know God in in a saving way, when they know God in Scripture, when God knows them, better way to put it, it is personal knowledge. It involves a saving, intimate ongoing relationship like what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 29 for those whom he foreknew he predestined 
to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn of many brethren. So the word know in foreknow actually indicates God's choice. So the text says that God foreknew beforehand to whom he would extend the grace of salvation. Therefore, foreknowledge is best understood to mean those he long ago thought of in a saving relationship to himself, and as one translation expressed it in the right manner in Romans 8, for God knew his people in advance and chose them. Then they become like his son. In fact, in the case of our text, in verse number 4, in, it says in Ephesians 1.4, if you can call it this, there's a timing in election, and it says this in verse 4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So the word of God is telling us, listen, God did this, God did this choosing, God dis, dis, did this electing before this world and universe was even here before he even called it into existence. The plan of God's salvation was already in place. In fact, you and I, who know Christ, were already in the mind of God. That the pleasure of God was already directed toward us, that the plan of God for Christ coming to, to die for sinners was already in place before the world was even created. Don't think about that too long. Paul says in Thessalonians 2, verse 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So see, the Word of God is telling us His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, as, such as faith and repentance. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he selected, whom he elected. These acts are a result, not the cause of God's choice. So election, therefore, is not determined by or conditioned on any virtuous quality or any foreseen act in man. Those whom God sovereignly elected, he brings through the power of the Holy Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. In other words, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. Now, that's for us to praise God. I think of one example in the, in the book of Acts. A woman, it says in Acts 16, 14, a woman named Lydia, you know Lydia, right? From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple, wealthy woman, a worshiper of God, already worshiping God, was listening to Paul preach, and this is what the Bible says, and the Lord opened her heart to respond. In other words, that she thought she was already doing what's right. She thought she was already in. And she found out that day that 
her heart was not open to God, but was closed to God, that she was blind and she was dead, and God had to even open her heart to respond to the message being preached. Why? Well, we know now because she was one of the elect. She was the one who was going to believe. She was predestined to believe. And so there is an object and a purpose for our election, which I'll not cover this morning, but it's this. Now, we are not only elected to be saved. Notice what it says in verse number four. It says, again, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That means that we were chosen to be holy people and to be blameless before God. We're going to stand before God someday, and you know what? We're not going to be blamed for anything because Christ took the full penalty and burden for us, right? The full cost it for our sin he paid for. So therefore, this doctrine itself lays the foundation for us to live holy and blameless lives. In other words, if you are really saved, you will live a holy and blameless life. It goes with the package. You know, people who say, you know what, I made a profession of faith 20 years ago, but 20 years later, I understood it and started following Christ. That's, that's a very unusual statement, and I think they misunderstand that when you get saved, you get saved to be holy and blameless too. God's doing that on you. You have the Spirit of God that's going to pro- produce real fruit in your life, right? Fruit of repentance and faith, fruit of bearing the, the, the fruit of the Spirit of God, all those things. In fact, look over to Ch- Ephesians chapter 5 pretty quick, and let, look at verse number 1, because it says here in this passage, listen, if you're going to be, you are, you are saved to be imitators of God. And then look what it says in verse number one. Therefore, be imitators of God, my beloved children. You see that beloved children there? See, that's, that's a, a term of endearment to God's chosen, to God's elect, to his children. But he says something to them, be imitators of God. And then notice he says in verse number two, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and Offering and a sacrifice to God and a fragrant aroma to the Lord. Then notice in verse number three. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Verse 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. Right? For you were formerly darkness, but you are light in the Lord walk as children of light. I can't walk unless I have the right doctrine to know why I'm walking that way. And of course, one thing that I understand is that, listen, God saved me, and God has given me his spirit, and God is working his will in my life and in your life who are real believers. Even you even know it, even when you buck against it, even when you kick against it. 
even when you dislike what God's doing. Your flesh wants to go one way, but the Spirit of God is bringing you a whole different way, and God is perfecting you. He's making you like Him. So, brethren, this is a benefit that moves us to blessing. It causes us to rejoice in God. And in the end, it was uh, James Montgomery Boyce who also said this, election is humbling because God has chosen some by grace entirely apart from merit. Isn't it humbling to know that God chose you long ago to be saved? Now, why hasn't he chosen other people? Don't know. Because God decided to do it that way. The Father decided to do it that way. The Trinity decided to do it that way. But elections also encourages our love for God. Because salvation, we find out, is all of God. In other words, if God saved you, will you not stay saved? If God saves you, will you not bear the fruit of the Spirit? See, salvation is all of God. Then our love for him must be boundless. We keep growing and growing in our love for Christ. Also, election enriches our worship. Because the chosen know God. And they are known by God. They can freely worship, praise, give thanks, serve him. They don't have to have anybody watching them because they know this is what God's called them to do, this is what they're doing. They find the peace and the joy in serving God and serving others and serving the body. And also, election encourages evangelism. This is where people say, well, if you believe that and God's going to save everybody, then what's the point? Why do we have to tell anybody about it if God's going to save them anyway? Well, because God commands us to share the gospel but remember election encourages evangelism because God uses the means of the gospel proclamation he uses us to proclaim uh, to awaken to call sinners to Christ he uses us to do that he didn't call angels to do that he called us to do that and no matter how feeble and imperfect our witness is we know all who are chosen for salvation then called by God, will come to God. They will come. So, so don't miss this. That election cannot be based on anything done by us. Election is apart from anything a human being might or might not do. It's all of God. One person said this, the bottom line is this, why are people saved? Because they because God chose them, because the Father chose them in Christ, then why are people condemned to go to hell? Because they refuse to believe. Because they love their sin. Because they're heading, all of us are heading to hell, and is an election, of course, God has done before. In eternity, he chooses us in Christ to be holy and blameless. So this is one of the benefits of the Father that there are two more blessings that come from the Father. The next one goes along with it in verse number 5, that he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ. And then, of course, in verse 6, the Father has accepted us in Christ. 
that so he's he what is he he's doing he's in scripture he's removing all the obstacles that would cause us to doubt our salvation cause us to doubt what God has done in this great plan of salvation that he's he's laying out before us and in doing that he lays all of it down for us so we can live lives that are set on a very stable ground and live with gusto live with boldness live with joy live with peace uh, why because we are saints who are faithful who are in Christ that's why so how much do we have to praise God about how much to praise God because of the way in which he blesses us just one particular point here is that he chose you the father chose you for the foundation of the world. And that should humble us to praise God every day. Do we deserve it? No. Would we ever have deserved it? No. Could we ever have could could we ever have been good enough? No. What could we have done? Nothing. Could have done nothing. And God places love on him, and that's why when he places his love on him, we understand what he's done for us in the Father, then we learn to love him. We learn to really love God. See, and that produces praise. Not fake stuff, not, not, not hypocritical stuff, real praise. You know, you're driving in your car, you're going to work, you're praising God. Because you're praising God. Why? Because His truth is coming out of you. You're beginning to think about it. You're mulling it over in your brain. All right? And your brain is starting to swell. And it's swelling because it's so vast and so large that you just have to stop and say, Lord, how unsearchable are your ways. Right? And how deep are your ways. Lord, you're God, I'm man, you saved me, and I praise you for it. And I want to serve you with all my heart. And I'm looking forward to the day that I'm with you. Drop this old body off, and I'm with you in heaven. I'm looking forward to that day. That's what doctrine does to us. It has to start there. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I, I thank you, Lord, for this truth. I know, Lord, for some it could be very difficult. But, Lord, it was difficult for me in the beginning, too. And, Lord, you worked with me. You showed me Scripture. And then one day I submitted to your truth. And that day, Lord, was a day that changed many things in my life. I stopped trying to save people in the sense of it was all about me doing it. And Lord, I just rested in the gospel and the power of the gospel that the gospel saves people. And that, Lord, I know people are going to trust you as their Lord and Savior. I know people are going to get saved. We still live in the age of grace. And the gospel is still being preached. And there's still some people who are not yet in the kingdom yet. Lord, you're going to save them. Lord, help us to be faithful to be able to bring this powerful gospel to those people that before eternity, before the world was created, you elected to be saved. And I pray, Lord, that when they are, we would praise you, knowing, Lord, that we could never save anyone ourselves. We can be the preacher. We can be the teacher. We can be the one who proclaims the truths of God from the word of God, but ultimately, Lord, you are the one who saves. So we praise you, Lord,
that you have placed your love upon us long ago, and you knew us. And now, Lord, we're getting to know you more and more, and we're getting to learn how to love you and serve you. We're getting to know what you did on our behalf. We're getting to know some of our benefits that we have and, and we maybe we didn't even realize before. But I pray, Lord, that we would realize it and we would learn to live our Christian life with the peace of God that has come from the grace of God that produces the joy of God. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have and will do because we know you're not done with us. You're going to keep sanctifying us and making us holy and blameless for the rest of our time here on earth. But someday, Lord, we know we're destined for glory. We're destined to be perfect in your presence. And for that day, we look forward. And I pray, Lord, from now until then, let us be faithful. Let us be what the Bible calls the saints who are faithful, who are in Christ. And we'll praise you, Lord, and thank you. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.